today in chapter 13, we are going to look at the second of the kings of Judah. Now remember, by way of reminder, that the nation has split. There's a northern kingdom called Israel. There's a southern kingdom that is called Judah. King Solomon is now dead. Uh, and his son has taken over the throne of Judah, if you will. And his name is Rehoboam. But there has been a new king kind of forming through this civil war in the north, a man by the name of Jeroboam. And we read about Jeroboam, 1 Kings 13, and it says, Now after this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way. That Jeroboam was an evil king. As a matter of fact, of the 19 kings in the north, not one of them did that which was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. Of every one of those kings in the north, it says that they did evil. And Jeroboam sort of got the ball rolling and established this pattern of evil in the northern kingdoms. Now the south, the true throne of David if you will, that was passed from King Solomon to his son, as I said, Rehoboam. And sadly, the scripture says that he too did that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord. So we read in 2 Chronicles 12, he did evil. He did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Well, as we finished up our study last week, the last couple of verses of chapter 12, we see that the kingdom passes from Rehoboam, uh, Solomon's son, to Abijah, Solomon's grandson. And so those verses we read say, Now the acts of Rehoboam, from first to last, are they not written in the chronicles of Shemaiah the prophet and of Edo the seer? There were continual wars between Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and Rehoboam slept with his fathers, and he was buried in the city of David, and Abijah his son reigned in his place. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, Abijah began to reign over Judah. And he reigned for three years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Micaiah, the daughter of Uriel of Gibeah. Now, when King Jeroboam was the king in the north for a period, uh, during his period, there were three different kings in the south. So as we saw Rehoboam for 17 years, we just read Abijah for three years, and then during the last year or so of this northern king's life, there's going to be a fellow by the name of Asa, which we're going to study as we move into chapter 14. So there's a little bit of overlap. So Jeroboam knows Rehoboam. Jeroboam knows Elijah. And it says that during the, their reigns that there were continual wars. Now, during the reign of Rehoboam and Jeroboam, are you with me here? The king of the north and the king of the south, they had continual wars, as it says in verse 15 of chapter 12. But the reality is they were more like skirmishes. You know, it's not a, a full-blown war. They haven't declared war necessarily. You know, but something happens, one guy starts yelling at the other, and next thing you know, people are fighting. And they have these skirmishes, these continual wars, as it's listed there. But according to chapter 13, verse 2, it appears that when Rehoboam, the king of Judah, died, that Jeroboam, the king of Israel, the king of the northern tribe, sees this as a great opportunity. There's going to be a new king. He's likely not going to be prepared and ready. He's not going to know what hit him, and so I will attack now. So again, looking at verse 2, it says, Now there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. And Abijah went out to battle, having an army of valiant men of war, 400,000 chosen men. You think, wow, that's a lot. But notice, but Jeroboam drew up his line of battle against him with 800,000 chosen men mighty warriors. And I suspect sensing an opportunity to defeat the new king, Jeroboam is going to go out to him with great force. And as we see there, it says 800,000 men. Now, Abijah, 400,000 men, that's impressive. 
But 800,000, and I'm no mathematician, but that's twice as many. That's a lot, as you can see there. So you have 1.2 million chosen men gathered on this particular field of battle. Just to put that in perspective, I know Neil's a big Civil War fan, or I don't know a fan, but buff, I guess might be a better term here. Uh, the Battle of Gettysburg, bloodiest, deadliest, biggest battle in the Civil War, that had 160,000 men gather on that Pennsylvania battlefield. This one has 1.2 men, million men, gather on this particular battlefield. That's about eight times the size. And I imagine going out there and looking and observing all this must have been quite a sight. And I suspect Jeroboam, among other things, was hoping maybe just by sheer size alone, by 800,000 men gathered sort of uh, around and in front of me that uh, Jer excuse me, Abijah would say, you know what, we, uh, we don't want to fight. You know, what, do you, what is it you want? Can we talk this thing out or whatever? Maybe he could somehow intimidate Abijah. But as we read, and we're going to continue to read through the passage here, Abijah is not intimidated. By this I would have been intimidated. I would have tried to talk my way out. I don't know about you. I'm not that tough. You know what I mean? No problem. Just don't hit me. You know, I just want to walk away not in pain. Uh, is the general idea here. So, but he's not intimidated and says in verse 4 that he goes to top mountain, Zemarim, and he gives a speech. So not only is he not intimidated, but he's going to go out and he's going to give a speech here in front of these million people. And it says, Then Abijah stood up on Mount Zemarim, that is on the hill country of Ephraim, and he said, Hear me, O Jeroboam, and all of Israel. Ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever, to David and his sons by a covenant of Saul. Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebah, a servant of Solomon, the son of David, rose up and he rebelled against his Lord. And certain worthless scoundrels gathered about him and defied Rehoboam, the son of, Jero uh, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young and irresolute, and he could not withstand them. So rather than being intimidated, Abijah goes out and he begins to tick off all these reasons why the northern kingdom is wrong and why they're going to lose. Remember, 400,000 men against 800,000 men. And the guy comes out and he said, let me tell you all the reasons why you guys are wrong. First off, your leader is a scoundrel. Second, and then he goes and he lists all these reasons. And he said, we're going to win. So you guys give up, essentially, is what he's saying here. Now, he, he lists the reasons why Jeroboam and the north are wrong. Number one is found in verse 5. And that is that he points out that the rulership of the Jewish people was established by God according to God's covenant with David and David's family line. David and his children are to be the king of Israel. I don't know who you think you are up there in the north Jeroboam, and I don't know what you people are doing following this guy. He's not of the line of David. So that's the first thing he lists there, that they have to be according to the family line of David because God promised it. God established a covenant. You remember the name of the covenant? We learned it. It's called the Davidic Covenant. Very good. I heard a couple of it. It's called the Davidic Covenant. And the Davidic Covenant essentially says that David, you know what? I like you. I like your heart. I like where you're going. And I'm going to use you and your family line to be the king. And ultimately that would be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, who is of the Davidic line. Now, when a covenant was made that day, the two parties involved in the covenant, what they would do is they would take an animal. That could be a bird, it could be a bull, whatever it may be. And they would cut that animal in half, and they would lay the left side and the right side with a path down the middle. And the two parties that were making the covenant, they would literally walk through the two parts of the animal there. And the idea is this animal gave its life. We are serious 
about this covenant. We're dead serious about this covenant, you might say. Now here, it references also that it was a covenant that was made with salt. And the idea, as salt can serve as a preservative, these animals, these carcasses that are lying there, they would be covered with a salt as well to preserve them for an extended period of time or a longer period of time. And the idea, it doesn't matter how long the salt is there, but the point of it is, as the salt serves as a preservative, and those animals could stay out there even longer than typical or normal, so is this an unbreakable, extra strong covenant. And so describing this Davidic covenant that God uh, established here, it's referred to as being extra strong. It's an unbreakable treaty. And so his first point here, he says, look, you don't just get to rise up and declare whoever it is you want to be king. It doesn't work that way. God himself established an unbreakable covenant with the line of David. Now, the second reason that he gives here, Abijah now begins to debunk this myth. You think because you've come here with twice as many people that we have, you think you've come here with 800,000 mighty warriors, I believe is how the passage describes it, that somehow that is going to give you victory. Look at verse 8. It says, and now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord in the hands of the son of David because you have a great multitude? He could have said to him, you know, you could have brought millions and millions of people here. Either way, you're coming against God. And you're not going to have victory here, Abijah is saying. And this is some speech. You know, this is out there, and he's talking junk here. But he has God, sort of the big bully, if you will, you know, the big guy behind you. You know, you can say whatever you want because the big guy's right back there. So he has God on his side. Thirdly, Abijah makes mention of the way in which the northern kingdom is foolishly placing their trust in golden calves and in fake priests. So notice verse 8. It says, And now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord in the hands of the sons of David because you have a great multitude, and that you have with you golden calves that Jeroboam made for you as gods? Have you not driven out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites, and made priests for yourselves like the peoples of other lands? Whoever comes to you for ordination with a young bull or seven rams, he becomes a priest of what are no god. And so I think to put that in our words, he said, look, everything you're doing, everything you've done, everything you're doing is putting you on the opposite side of God. Do you really think you're going to come out victorious here? He says, and then he probably ends it with something, come on, please. Get for real. So he continues now. He lists these reasons why they're going to lose. They're in the wrong. But he also lists why Judah is in the right. And we find that here in verses 10 through 12. He says, but as for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him. We have priests ministering to the Lord who are sons of Aaron, and Levites for their service. They offer to the Lord every morning and every evening burnt offerings and incense of sweet spices, set out the showbread on the table of pure gold, and they care for the golden lampstand that its lamps may burn every evening. For we keep the charge of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken him. Behold, God is with us at our head, and his priests with their battle trumpets to sound the call to battle against you. O oh, sons of Israel. Now he's not addressing the king anymore. Now he's addressing the people. And he essentially says to them, join our side. He said, O oh, sons of Israel, do not fight against the Lord, the God of your fathers, for you cannot succeed. You cannot succeed. And so he says, look, these are the reasons against Israel, but these are the reasons for Judah. Because we are following the system of worship that was instituted by Moses 
and put in place or established by David. We're doing it as God tells us to do it, and you really think you're going to come up and you're going to beat us. So this is the long speech he's giving out there. And Jeroboam is like, just keep talking. Because you don't see this yet. We're going to see it in verse 13. While he is talking and giving this speech and pontificating as how amazing Judah is and how poor Israel is, Jeroboam is fixing an ambush around the backside. So he's like, just keep talking. Just keep talking. And then the walkie-talkie things were in place, sir. And so they had walkie-talkies then. But anyway, verse 13, it says, Now Jeroboam had set an ambush around to come upon them from behind. Thus his troops were in front of Judah, and the ambush was behind Judah. Imagine the terror of those 400,000 men, even of Abijah, who's given a fantastic speech, really confident in it. But imagine the terror to suddenly kind of glance behind and see essentially just as many men in front of you as there are behind you. And to realize that you're sort of trapped. And to say, man, why did I talk so much? I wasn't paying attention to the circumstances. We're in trouble now. And with the outlook looking bleak, on the left and on the right, what does Abijah do? What do the children of Judah do? They look up, the scripture says. And so verse 14, when Judah looked behind, excuse me, when Judah looked, behold, the battle was in front and behind. And so they cried unto the Lord, and the priests blew their trumpet. Now, it doesn't tell us necessarily what the details of this prayer was, and so we can imagine. How do you imagine this prayer? I think some people imagine the prayer when something like this, Dear Father in heaven, who is altogether lovely and kind, we beseech thee this day to hear the prayer of thy humble servants. We acknowledge that we are most unworthy to approach thou, I don't, I don't think that it was like that. I suspect the prayer was a little more like this. Help! Oh God, help! Help! Please help! As they ran around frantically, realizing that they were in trouble. And people were looking for the sword and shield that they kind of threw on the ground, didn't think that they would need it, because there's a speech going on. I don't need to hold this heavy sword here. But now they're in trouble, and so they're crying out to God for help. Sometimes the only thing there is time for is a cry for help our Lord. That there's no place to give some long speech or some eloquently written item here that God will be impressed with or that others will be impressed with, but rather just saying, God, I need you. And the scripture says that God hears those prayers. Is that surprising to you? For instance, you have an example where Peter is on the Sea of Galilee there, literally on the Sea of Galilee there, walking on the water with Jesus. And the scripture says that Peter began to sink in the water. As he began to look around at the waves, he began to sink. And it says, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, Peter cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. If Peter had prayed a prayer like, dear father in heaven, who is altogether lovely and kind, we beseech thee this day, he would have drowned. Right? So all he had time for was a prayer, Lord, save me. And Jesus did. There's an example in the Old Testament where Nehemiah comes before the Persian king, Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah had just been thinking of the devastation of Jerusalem, and he was, he was heavy. He was down that particular day. And it says that he went before the king, and his face was sort of like depressed looking. And you didn't go before the king. You were supposed to cheer him up, not bring him down, and you can get in trouble. And so he comes in there, and the king's like, what's up with you? What's up? Why are you so upset? Why is your face so downtrodden? And he's like, oh, crumb, you can tell I'm in trouble now. And everything's fine. Everything's right. And he said, no, really, what's the matter here? Then the king said to him, what is it that you are requesting? 
And he said, so I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king. Now, the king wants an answer. What is it that you want? I see you're down. What do you need? Now, give me 20 minutes to say a prayer first. You can't do that. You've got to come right back with the prayer. So, And I love this because this is what we do all the time in life, isn't it? We say a prayer to God. God, give me some wisdom here in our heads. And then we say with our mouths what he said. Nehemiah chapter 2, you can read it. Jesus commenting on prayer in another place. He says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now, my, my point in this is not to say that it's prayer over an extended period of time is wrong or that it's bad. As a matter of fact, most of us probably don't pray enough. We probably should work prayer more into our daily habits and our lives here. But my point is this, that there is a false notion that our prayers must be some grand performance that sort of oozes with eloquence that people will listen to and they'll say, wow, that was something. I don't know what you said, but I'm sure you didn't want a big words in there. You know, that sort of thing. And because we sometimes have that notion, some people don't pray at all. You go, I don't know how to pray. I don't know what words to say. I can't pray as good as you do or something like that. And so the idea is let God know your heart. And sometimes that's two or three words, God help. Sometimes circumstances are such that you just don't have the time to pray. Other times, our hearts are so overwhelmed that I don't even know what to say, God. I'm just sitting here before you, and I'm broken, and I'm devastated, and I'm hurt. I think that's what Paul was referencing in Romans chapter 8 when he says, it's in those times likewise that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we all need to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. It's in those instances as we just come, if you will, overwhelmed, and the Spirit himself intercedes for us or makes intercession for us. Abijah, in this instance, he only had time to cry out a prayer like, God, help. And we see that God heard that prayer. And so I think a lesson for us then is not to be afraid to come to God in simplicity and to come to him in honesty and make your request or make your heart known to him. Now, verse 14 of our passage, again, chapter 13, it says, Now when Judah looked, behold, the battle was in front and behind. And they cried to the Lord, and the priests blew the trumpets. Then the men of Judah raised the battle shout. And when the men of Judah shouted, God defeated Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. The men of Israel fled before Judah, and God gave them into their hand. So despite the fact that there was 800,000 men on one side and 400,000 men on the other, despite the fact that the men of the southern kingdom were surrounded on both sides, despite the fact that Jeremiah had 18 years of experience to Abijah's one year, if, you, if that, of experience, despite all those things, we read that the northern kingdom was soundly defeated. Look at verse 17. It says, Abijah and his people struck them with great force. So there fell slain of Israel 500,000 chosen men. Thus the men of Israel were subdued at that time, and the men of Judah prevailed because they relied on the Lord, the God of their fathers. Well, fortunately for us, the reason for the victory couldn't be any clearer. And so, you know, if it didn't say that, we might begin, wow, Abijah must have really been a great military leader, or you know, something like that. But the reason for the victory is very clear. Look at, I guess it's around verse 15. 
It says, when the men of Judah shouted, God defeated Jeroboam. Verse 18, it says, thus the men of Israel were subdued at that time, and the men of Judah prevailed because they had relied on the Lord, the God of their fathers. And this will be the beginning of the end for King Jeroboam, the king of the northern kingdom. Verse 19 and 20 goes on to say that after this battle that they were pursued by the men of Judah, we, we read that 500,000 men had died. And then as you, you continue to read verses 19 and 20, it says that all sorts of cities began to fall. It said, Abijah pursued Jeroboam, he took cities from him, Bethel with its villages, and Jeshanah with its villages, and Ephron with its villages. Jeroboam did not recover his power in the days of Abijah, and the Lord struck him down, and he died. So this is the only recorded event that we have of King Abijah, the king of the south here. He had a short reign. We saw in verse 2 that he only was king of Judah for about three years. And during those three years, verse 21 of chapter 13 says that he was able to grow strong. So he was successful during his short three-year reign. Unfortunately, in that sort of that summary verse there, chapter 20, or chapter, verse 21, the second portion, it says that like his fathers, he also sinned by taking multiple wives. It says he took 14 wives and he had 22 sons and 16 daughters. I guess the good news is he only took 14 wives. He's getting a little bit better, I guess, than his dad. Uh, Solomon took 1,000 wives. His father, Rehoboam, took 78 wives. So I guess in comparison, 14 wives is, is doing pretty well, uh, I guess, of course. But uh, nonetheless, he sinned in that way as well. Verse 22, it says, Now the rest of the acts of Abijah, his ways and his sayings, that they are, they are written in the story of the prophet Edo. And Abijah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, and Asa his son reigned in his place. This is the only recorded event of Abijah in the book of First Chronicles, or Second Chronicles. In fact, in the parallel passage that's found in 1 Kings chapter 15, it's also the only event. So this is the only thing that's been written about this guy. We don't know anything else about him except this major battle that he had against the north here. And if Second Chronicles was the only place that we looked to draw sort of a conclusion, we said, so tell me about Abijah. What kind of man was he? If the only place that we could look was this passage in Second Chronicles, then our conclusion might be something like, well, Abijah was a man of great faith. He clearly evidenced that faith when he led the kingdom of Judah, despite all odds, to victory against uh, the north in the Battle of Zemarim. That would be the conclusion that we would draw. And from Second Chronicles, that would be the correct uh, conclusion. However, in First Kings, we have a little bit of additional information. So if you would please turn to First Kings chapter 15. And this additional information, it's not a contradiction. It's just information that wasn't provided for us over there in Second Chronicles. And it leads us, leaves, I should say, us with a very different impression of Abijah's life. So First Kings, it's to your left, a couple books to your left. First Kings chapter 15, it says this. Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijah, uh, it has an M there, uh, in our passage in Second Chronicles, which was written hundreds of years later, it ends with an H. If you read the story and who's his mom and what battles and all this sort of stuff, you see we're talking about the same guy, just with an alternate spelling of his name. It says, so again, it says that Abijam began to reign over Judah. And he reigned for three years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Makkah, the daughter of Absalom. 
And he walked in all the sins that his father did before him. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem. Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. It continues, Now, there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life, and the rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam, and Abijam slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, and Asa his son reigned in his place. So we have these similarities. And again, after reading the Second Chronicles passage, we might uh, believe that Abijah was this tremendous man of faith, evidenced by this victory that he had here. But look again at verse 3 of 1 Kings 15, because it says, the summary verse of his life says, and he walked in all the sins that his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. Anybody hear this? You say, wait a minute. What about his prayer? Remember that heartfelt prayer that he cried out to Jehovah and Jehovah heard? We read the words that he shared about, a, about Judah not abandoning Jehovah, about worshiping God as that he was supposed to be worshipped. So how could these things be true if this was a man who did not walk in, or did walk in all the sins that his father did before him? And I think the answer is found in the second portion of verse 3 where it says, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. You see, if Abijah had to take a test on theology of the Jewish faith, you know, what do you believe in all this? He would have passed that test with flying colors. He knew that God had promised that the throne would pass on through the line of David into perpetuity. He knew that, and he could quote that. He knew that God was to be worshipped according to a prescribed way in a prescribed place by a prescribed people, by the priest. You can't just go making golden calves, and anybody that wants the job can get the job. It doesn't work that way. He knew these things. So if he were to take a theology test, he would pass. And you might say that Abijah had great head knowledge. But as we read in that verse 3 there, he had a very weak heart knowledge. And I think Abijah is not alone in this condition. That condition of knowing something in our head even be able to, if necessary, go out into a field of battle and communicate that with our mouth, but never truly possessing it in our hearts. It's been said that the longest distance between two points is the 18 inches it takes to get from our head down into our heart. How easy it is for us to know things up in our head, but to miss it down in our heart. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus quoted the prophet Isaiah, and he was speaking of the Pharisees, and he said this, he said, This people draw near to me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And if anybody could pass a theology test, it would have been the Pharisees. And yet the record is clear that the Pharisees, the vast majority of them, had no relationship with the Father. Another place, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Heavy words. Now last week when we studied the lesson of the life of King Rehoboam, we concluded that the lesson for each of us to learn was that Rehoboam did not set his heart to seek the Lord. It seems to me that the lesson from the life of Abijah is to make sure that the message gets down into our heart. So Rehoboam had the message, it was sort of resonating in his heart, but he didn't set his heart. Abijah, the message never got down into the heart. It was up here in the head, but never in the heart. To go to the Lord, this is a lesson for us, to go to the Lord with our head knowledge, laying ourselves before him and say, Father, would you take this from my head and make it heart knowledge? I think that's what David was talking about in Psalm 139. David said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. A prayer like that, a prayer that David prayed like that, is asking God to use his word to expose every inch of us. It's asking God to search out the deepest places of who we are and to reveal his word to be true in our lives. The difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge is the belief that not only is something true, but the exercise of that truth in our life. And again, I think, to quote Paul, that this is what he was praying, if you will, for the believers in the city of Colossae. Colossians 1, he says, And so from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you might walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. The idea is that that which is in your head will get into your heart so that it affects the way you live your life. And so if we have just this knowledge that's up in our head, but it doesn't impact our hearts, then it will never have any positive effect that it's supposed to have. Now, what I'm not saying is this. I'm not saying, well, it doesn't doctrine, things like that. It's anything i got to think hard about is not really important. What's really important is my heart. What's really important is how I feel. That's not what I'm saying. If, if, if that were kind of what we thought, we would have never brought a guy like Robbie in that can appeal to us with a logical argument. We would never study things like doctrine. We would never pay attention to those things. We would just come to feel good together. And as long as I was stirred, as long as I had goosebumps, then you know we had a good day at church. That, that's not what I'm saying here. But I'm trying to draw the distinction between knowing stuff up here but not having it down here. And I think that's the situation that you have with Abijah. He's a man that knows all the answers, but he hasn't applied those answers to his own personal life. And so you have a circumstance where he cries out to God and he's able to give God all these things. And despite the condition of Abijah's heart, God still answers his prayer. Isn't that amazing? Mm -hmm. Now why? Why does God answer his prayer? I think he does so for two reasons. Number one, because God is merciful. That God answers the prayers of people that don't deserve to have their prayers answered. It's the example of scripture, it's the example of many of our lives, that God answers the prayers of people that don't deserve to have their prayers answered. I love what G. Campbell Morgan said on this in his book, Life Applications, for every chapter of the Bible. He said, the whole story, this one that we read here in 2 Chronicles, is another illustration of the truth to which the scriptures and human experience bear persistent testimony of the unfailing grace of God and of his unwillingness, or excuse me, of his willingness to forgive and to live to deliver those who call upon him 
in sincerity, notwithstanding all of their unworthiness. It's an example of that in the scripture, that our God is merciful. And I think it's also an evidence of the truth that our God is faithful to his word. So God had made a promise to David that upon his line, and we read that one passage earlier here, uh, not because of Rehoboam, not because of Abijah, but because that David had set his heart to do that which was right, and God made this promise to him. And that reminds me of 2 Timothy chapter 2. I love the verse. Actually, it's the theme verse of our study in First and Second Chronicles, in which it says, when we are faithless, he remains faithful. And it gives us the reason there, because he cannot deny himself. That's his character. Our God is faithful to his word. And so I, I have no doubt that some of us here today are thinking, you know what, I've blown it. You don't know the week that I had. I cleaned myself up pretty good today. I came in and I looked pretty good. And you might think, well, there's a spiritual fellow there. But you don't know the week I had, the month I had, the year that I have had. Surely I couldn't come to God in prayer. And then to you I would say, when we are faithless, he is faithful. So you could come to God in prayer. And I would also say that God continues to be faithful to his word. As Paul said to the Philippians, he says, I am sure of this. I am sure. Absolute confidence is the way that word uh, could be interpreted. Something that you can stand upon and build your life upon, a sure foundation. I am absolutely confident of this sure foundational truth that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And so if you strayed this last week, last night, this last year, you've grown distant from the Lord, be reminded that you can return to him because our God is merciful. And some of us here might be thinking, you know, I've been running on head knowledge. I can't remember the last time I asked God to expose me, to take the information I learned on a Sunday or in a daily quiet time or something I heard on the radio in a small group Bible study, and to take that information from my head and say, God, shine a light on my heart and expose me. I can't remember the last time I gave any serious thought to the implications of a biblical truth that entered into my mind. Maybe that's you. If that is you, then I encourage you, let the word travel the necessary 18 inches from your head down to your heart. Allow God to expose your heart. And we allow God to expose our heart, and it begins, and at least in my life, I don't know if I can point to a place in the Bible where it says the procedure to allow God to expose your heart, but in my life, I'll give you how it works for me, is when I come to the Lord and I finally stop, no more excuses, no more ifs, no more, well, if it wasn't for this guy or that guy, but I finally just stop and I say, you know what, Lord, you're right. Show me what you need to show me at this time. And then as the Lord begins to show that, I say, all right, Lord, and then we begin to walk in that. And so, you know, you've been a bitter jerk. Maybe it's time you go apologize to some people. I say, you're absolutely right, Lord, I have been a bitter jerk. But I never go to apologize to people. Then has the work really gotten down into my heart? No. You know, Greg, you've been struggling with such and such an area. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Lord. But if I don't do something about it, then it hasn't gotten to become heart knowledge. Remember Paul's words there in Colossians, that you may be filled with all knowledge so that you may walk in a manner that is worthy. And so we allow God to expose us in our heart, how his word applies, and then after that has been done, we respond in obedience to whatever it is that he has shown us. 
So the lesson from Rehoboam, a heart set upon the Lord, fixed. The, the lesson here from Abijah, let it come from the head, let it get down into the heart. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you that we can learn lessons from others and not have to go through them ourselves at times, Lord. Lord, how gracious, how merciful you are. Uh, Lord, I think of the way in which uh, you tell us in your word, you, you kind of come up behind us and you whisper that this is the way. Walk ye therein. And Lord, we see you doing that with your word this morning. You have reminded us of an important truth. But we don't want to be just Bible scholars. We don't want to win Bible verse trivia games or memory verse quizzes or anything like that. But we want to be people that take the things that we are learning and have them get down into our hearts so that they affect the lives that we are living. When we think of uh, Kevin's words earlier, this idea that we do all of these things, we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works to the glory of God the Father. Father, we ask that you would be glorified. But you've been merciful to us, gracious to us, to provide us with these truths so that we might walk in them. But we pray for the courage and the discipline now to carry those things out. In Jesus' name.